very familiar passage to most of us here today, if not everyone, and I'm sure it's been taught in greater measure and excellence, but this particular passage is still a pertinent pericope of Scripture with a divine intention to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that we may all be equipped for every good work. And just as Peter says and stated that as long as we're in these earthly bodies, these earthly dwellings, it is to stir us up by way of reminder. So I'm going to read today from James chapter 1, verses 16 down through verse 27. James 1, 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of a word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten that what kind of person he was. But one that who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me open this up in a word of prayer, too, before I begin this message. Great and glorious Father, we are indeed privileged and and just amazed at your marvelous grace and the, the great opportunity we have as your adopted children to gather to, to worship you in glorious song and thanksgiving and honor to your holy name and, and remembrance of all that you have done through us in Jesus Christ. And Father, what a privilege, what a humbling honor to open your holy word and read it. And, Lord, even to be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us and the means that you have done this. So, Father, use this weak vessel, use this voice, use these lungs and what you have prepared in my heart to edify and equip 
to strengthen, to reprove, to correct, to perform your work of righteousness in the hearts who hear. May you alone, Father, be glorified in all that is said from this pulpit this day. For it's in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen. It, it is truly, indeed, a humbling privilege to be in this pulpit, not because it's a uniquely fashioned piece of multiple pieces of wood and glue and screws, but because of what this pulpit stands for. It is the proclamation of truth, and not just any truth, but God's truth, God's word, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I have very big shoes to fill, but I'm trusting in the Lord and his spirit and the word that he has spoken to us. So again, we'll turn, return to James. Now, just a very quick overall summary in the book of James. I know you're familiar with this, but I'm, I want to establish a, a foundation here to build upon. This is a book of wisdom literature. It's very much compared to the book of Proverbs. And in it, there's an, there's an underlying theme and revelation of the wisdom of Christ. And it parallels really more, this book parallels more of Christ's teachings out of Matthew, um, his account on the Sermon on the Mount than any other book in, in the New Testament. But overall, James is, is emphasizing an, an objective faith in Christ that is demonstrated in joy through our trials, in the reality throughout every aspect of our life, unto good works. In this particular passage, he's emphasizing the importance of hearing the word of God and, and a reminder that we all dearly need to hear. And to start, I want to, I want to just take, I'm one of those step back and take a big picture look at things. And let's step back and just consider those three words, the word of God. If we go back, as we're studying well in, in protology, I want to look back at Genesis chapter one. Here we have the glorious account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And in verse three, it's, it's two little words that are profoundly amazing. God said, God said, and with this he spoke, he commanded, and he carried out all the aspects of creation, establishing his perfect order in the plants, in the animals, in the, in the water, in the land, in the heavens, in the stars. And throughout each specific day, the result of his command being fulfilled to his desired will was good. And we just we just studied this in Hebrews 11.3. It says that by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. But remarkably, let's stop and take a look real close at the sixth day. What happened? From the dust of the earth, he breathed life and created man. From man, he took a rib and breathed life and created woman. But in that breathing in of life, in that creation of man and woman, he created these wonderful things called ears, anvils, hammers, fluids that could resonate and hear things, sounds. And he didn't stop there. He's created things like vowels and consonants and syllables and words and sentences and themes and meanings. 
And within that, he's given us an understanding of what these words mean. He, he desired to communicate with his creation. And we also see at the center of creation the, the glorious cooperative work of the triune God. The Spirit was hovering upon the waters, the face of the waters, and bringing life and shape into the creation. And we see the Son of God, the Logos, the Word of God, active. Proverbs eight twenty-seven through 31. Write that down. Take that home. Meditate on this. It's a beautiful account of the Word, the logic, the Logos, the Son of God, the divine Word, Beside the Father as a master craftsman. God was issuing the command. The Son was creating, the, working out the details, and the Spirit was bringing life. Wow. This, this, this is amazing, folks. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and by him all things were created. So from the foundation of the world, God's intended purpose and plan in his creation, throughout history, through his redemptive work, God has spoken and he still speaks to us today. Does that take you to your knees or what? Considering that we are still but dust, And God, in Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and then to the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. And he is appointed heir of all things. This is not only a a mind-blowing, glorious work in creation, but it continues today. From the beginning, throughout history, through all the redemptive work of God, through the, even the angelic mediation, his re- redemptive work, the incarnate word of God, is revealed to us this very day through this inscripturated word that has been preserved and kept for us. It's life. It is, it is absolute truth. It examines and judges the hearts and intentions of man. It is good. It is for the glory of God because it will be fulfilled. It destroys God's enemies. And it enables understanding and brings forth wisdom. That's the wonder, other beautiful thing of creation. that He's given us the ability by his grace, by his working to understand these things. And to usher forth wisdom. It's, it's the heart and soul of the Christian's experience. Now, James today is going to get very personal. He's going to peer into the hearts of believing Christians. This is written to Jews that were dispersed. They were, they were believers. They were struggling. They were heavily persecuted. But this message transcends today because it asks us the same question. How are you responding to the word of God? How do you respond to what he says? Every person's attitude toward the word of God and their response to it is the substance and the core of their Christianity. It's been said, several preachers I've heard say this, it is a dangerous thing to hear the word of God. It is dangerous for the teacher to interpret it and explain it properly. But for those who hear it, 
everyone who hears it, they will be held responsible so that what they have heard and how they conform their lives to it, to this truth of Scripture, everything that it reveals. And we have a great blessing and privilege that at Heritage Grace, the elders and the pastors are set upon teaching and preaching the Word of God. So let's get into James. This this particular section, this pericope of Scripture, verses 19 to 27, there, there's two major themes here. The first one is how to receive. How do we receive the Word of God? That's in verses 19 to 21. Lord willing, we'll make it through all these verses. The second part in verses 22 to 27 is how are we to respond to the Word of God? What is the outcome and effect both in in and through us? The first section In 19 to 21, there's a key verb here. It's found in verse 21. Receive. Receive the word implanted. Consider our reception of the word of God. First, let's look back at Christ's warnings to his disciples, both in Mark and Luke. After he had shared the parable on the sowing of the seed of the word of God, He told them, interesting thing here, take care of what you listen to, what you hear. And then in Luke 8, 18, he says, take care how you listen. For whoever has, has what? Whoever has taken care and how he listens to what Jesus Christ, the word of God, has said. To him, more shall be given, and whoever does not have, disregards it, doesn't pay attention, doesn't really care. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. So in verse 19, James is giving us three specific examples, very, very piercing attributes of the hearer of God's word. Now, I know they're, they're in, in partial or, or you could consider this too, this verse, next two verses, is how we relate to one another. But I think James here is really focusing in on how we relate to God's word. So he starts out, verse 19, NASB is this you know, but it's a very strong imperative. Know this, my beloved brethren, know this. Know what? What does he want us to know? Verse 18. That in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We're to know that as believers, it was God's word that brought us forth, that we would be a kind of first fruits, a, a first portion given to God, wrought in the person and the work of Christ and regenerated by the power of hearing and believing in the gospel. This was alone a supernatural work through faith that brings us out of darkness and into light. But knowing this, James says, we are to be quick at hearing God's word. From that time forward, after regeneration, brothers and sisters, and this talks to me too, I'm not excluding myself in any way, we must be very quick at hearing God's word. And what this means, I think, and several, several commentators and pastors confirm this, that we need to take every opportunity we can to read it, to meditate on it, to study it, to be under solid teaching, 
whether through technological means or had the opportunity to be in front of somebody, hearing them in person. But take take these opportunities, even when you're on vacation traveling, even on business travel. It's one thing we, we tried to do when we were in California is, where's the church? Where's the church? i got to find one to be in it because I want to be there on the Lord's Day. Praise God, he, he led us to a wonderful Baptist church, and we heard a great message on Ecclesiastes that I'd never considered before. So we want to be quick about that because of the superiority of God's word. So why the urgency? Why the quickness? Because it is our food. It, it is our life. It is our drink. It's our lamp. It's our path. And we must commit ourselves to continued hearing of the word. It means putting ourselves in the position of hearing God's word proclaimed, taught, exposited, especially in the context of the local body of the church. And I'm, as I mentioned, even in, in on vacation or businesses. But the Greek here gives us an interesting emphasis on being on the ready and being quick to hear. And there's a reason behind this that James talks about earlier in, in chapter 1, and that's for the fact that we need to have a foundation to stand on. We need to be assured of what, who it is we stand upon. It is Christ himself. And we are not going to know that except by being in the word. Now James continues and he says that we need to be slow to speak. He's not meaning that we need to be quiet and church mouses and not say anything and hush, hush. But have a, a submissive heart, a, a humility, a weakness, there's a, a humility and a meekness, excuse me, when hearing the word of God. And there's two aspects to this. First, we are con- to consider the who and the what we are engaging. We're to be quick to hear it, but it, with the hearing, we're to be slow to speak. And actually, this means primarily, really foremost, is James 3, 1 sheds light on this later. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. This is disconcerting, a little a little <clears throat> frightening, but there is both a great weight in knowing that what I am preaching to you as the truth of God's word is a very serious responsibility. And there should be, as there is, Lord knows a holy fear within every believer that we should not flippantly and haphazardly teach or preach the eternal word of God. Should we go out and evangelize? Absolutely, absolutely, but holding fast to the gospel that has been given to us. Secondary, with the hearing, there should not be a quickness or a raising an objection, questioning, or even, why is God saying that to me? Well, what, what's, what's the problem here? We, we should be deliberate in our speech and, and not rash, but with divine strength, hold our tongues with proper self-control, striving for edifying speech. But even, even in a broader context of James here, as I said, these believers in the midst of, of serious trials, he, he reminds them, or actually Peter reminds them, that Christ is our primary example in this. He says, Peter says, and he's talking about Christ, he who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, even while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
And now James gets very personal, going down to the heart, heart and core of the matter here. He says, we are to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. And that word that James uses here, orgain, is, has with it a, a deep-seated resentment, an indignation, an agitation, a mental bent, not so much an outburst, but like a slow burn inside that you build up some resentment when you hear the truth of God's word. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1 and also in Romans 9, where there's a suppression of the truth, there's a resentment of what is heard. And it's actually, in some cases, many cases, directed toward the speaker and the preacher. So we're to be very slow to any sort of of resentment or hardening of our hearts at the truth of God. Not being offended or repulsed, but receive it without negative resentment. As Hebrews 4 says, 4.12, that you know, the word of God is living, it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow. And it is able to judge the heart and the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Sometimes God's word to us is not very pleasant. It reveals, it is light. But with those unpleasantries, we should take those immediately to the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews in, in chapter 3 and chapter 4 has three reminders and warnings of, of not hardening your heart, not responding in resentment to what God says, and hardening yourself against the truth. For when the Spirit speaks to us through his word, do not harden your heart. God's word, as we know, is truth and light, and it peers deeply into our souls. And as I said, it's not always or pleasant, but it always has a purpose. It is not null and void. It always has a purpose, and it will, by God's grace and the Spirit's work, complete that purpose. This is the goal. This is why James says next that it's dangerous. That that James says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God will not flourish in any angry attitude. Any angry disposition towards the truth of God, it will hinder our relationship with the Father and our relationships with one another. Proverbs 16.32 says that he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Anger will make us slow to listen. It will bring resentment and hesitation. And God's word is preached to achieve its desired purpose. And I said, that is the righteousness of God within us. So we are to receive the word with meekness and submission, with humility. And now James says in verse 21, with purity and humility. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Remember, this is where the main verb is found, receiving the word. And there's actually the the participle phrase that goes along with it is putting aside that actually modifies this verb. So in a sense, it should read, having put aside, receive the word. Before the word of God can be received and produce righteousness within it, sin has to be dealt with. 
And this is describing, this filthiness is describing, it has a likeness to dirty, stinky, filthy clothes. North Texas, middle of summer, working outside four or five hours in the day, you know what that's like. It's going to reek. And that's what sin is like. Unless it is cast off, it is put off, it is confessed and repented of, dealt with, even as Owen tells us in his books, even starving the flesh from the other areas of life that we are sensitive to, put them to death. It has also with it a reference of unplugging the ears, getting the spiritual wax out of our ears so that we can hear the word of God. Because our deafness to the word of God will allow sin to begin and accumulate and grow and become rampant in us. Now, a better reading of the word here for wickedness is really an abundance of malice. So we're to put off, we're to cast away those those intentions or, or even subtle desires to sin, to give in to temptation. And this, this whole context here of putting off, getting rid of these stinky clothes, this sin, casting it off, we see it reminded, given to us again and again from Paul in Ephesians 4.22 to laying aside the old self in Hebrews 12.1. We realize as we're studying all these great heroes of the faith in chapter 11, chapter 12 begins realizing this great cloud of witnesses that we have evidence to Lay aside these encumbrances that are going to cause us to sin. I heard one pastor give a very personal analogy because he was a father of the young child. He said, it's like if I would go pick up my child's dirty diaper and carry it around with me all day. Why would you do that? Why would you want to carry around that stench? And that's how we should treat sin. And we must do this through confession to the Father in godly sorrow, in repentance towards sin, with the seriousness and severity, and excuse me, a sincerity and severity. And this verse has both implications of a, of a salvific work, that when the Spirit's work in convicting a sinner of his sin and bringing them to regeneration to receive God's word, and also of a vific, a sanctifying truth, that for the believer, this is part of our daily walk. We should be in an, in an attitude and a walk of repentance. This is the, an utmost critical aspect for us to receive the word of God properly and in order for the righteousness of God to work within us. John Owen said in, in same books that uh, about sin is, is be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Go so far as even to starve your flesh from any allurements that would lead you into sin. Sin's desire is to do everything possible from keeping us, to keep us from hearing the word of God and from knowing God. That's its full intent. That's its fullest desire. Ultimately, to destroy us. Sin is what drives us to say, ah, the room's too cold today. I wish I'd turn the heat up or this sermon is really too long. It really doesn't apply to me. I've heard this all before. It wants to smother those type of things and get your mind off of God. How radically should we be involved in killing sin? God's word is very vivid and powerful. First Samuel fifteen thirty three. We have the picture here of Agag. 
the king that was not killed by Saul, he did not follow his commandments. And Samuel, the high priest, took out his sword and hacked him to pieces. This is how God looks at sin. That's what he wants and desires for us to do towards sin, towards any indifference or pride or any objection or reproach against God. Now, continue in verse 22. It says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Doers here is, is a noun. It describes someone who is obeying, who puts on God's truth and puts it into action. And this person is, is described very well in Matthew 7 when Jesus is talking about the two foundations. The one man who dug down deep and found the stone, the foundation rock, the building rock. And that's just a very clear depiction of, of someone who would build a sturdy structure. You're not going to just put on oh, Texas, we do it because floating foundations, but a very sound structure, these high rises, they go all the way down to the very bedrock. This is what we should do with the, the word of God in order for us to be doers. We're not only to be those, or we're to be those who not only submissively hear God's word, but are to allow his word to permeate, to sink down within us, to abide in us, so that we become doers. Or those who fulfill its commands, its desires. Not allowing this or having an indifference towards spending any reading, meditative effort with the word of God. Any man, any woman will become deluded, contrary to the truth. It's much like it has a, a meaning or an inclination toward mathematics. It's like trying to solve a very complex algebraic expression without even looking at the variables and how they're related to one another. So this indifference will allow that sin to come within. Now in verses 23 and 24, <clears throat> James gives a simple but very profound description of anyone who quickly dismisses any attempt to obey the word of God. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself he has immediately, and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In the natural realm, when any of us go by a mirror and don't take the time to look at it intently to either correct or fix or do whatever we need to do in the mirror. We just quickly glance, we walk away, we're going to forget what we look like, if there's any problems or not. But God's word is like a mirror to our souls. It's going to show us what we're really like. It'll disclose and reveal our sin, show to us our need for repentance and what repentance is really what it really is, the godly sorrow. It discloses the glorious promises of grace through faith in Christ. It is, it is sheer folly and foolishness and destructive to our souls if we look into God's word and see our desperate need and see the grace offered to us through Christ and to turn away. In verse 25, there's a, there's a powerful conjunction, however, that comes to us with a powerful promise too. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, 
the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, this looks intently carries with it, not, not a casual glance or an unintentional look, but it has the same meaning as, as with Moses in the Old Testament when he raised the bronze serpent. And those that would look, that would fix their eyes upon that bronze serpent would be healed, would be rescued, would be saved. It's a type of Christ. And also in John 20, it's interesting, when John ran to the tomb, he didn't just glance in and look around and say, okay, he's not here. He, he looked in with intent, with meaning, trying to figure out what is, what is going on in the tomb here. Where is he? And the intent, stooping over Scripture, zealously, inquisitively searching out the meaning, the intent of what God is saying to us, and abiding by it, we will become effectual doers of that word. Notice there is a having continued in it. This is a participle that's modifying our intently looking. So we intently look to abide and continue in it. Not just a one time and you're done. I've got my ticket. I'm out of here. Glory to God. I'm heading for heaven. No, it's, it's a part, a desperate part, a much needed part of our sanctification. It is to be started at salvation and continue throughout all of our life on earth. This is the only way we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this perfect law that James talks about here is, of course, the written word of God. It's not just restricted to the Ten Commandments or the Old Covenant itself, but it is the full reference of God's law, his word, and it is inclusive of the new covenant here. And with it, this law of liberty that comes freedom through Christ, through salvation, sin, his sin conquering power to free us not only from the bondage of sin, but to free us not to sin. So without intently looking and abiding, excuse me, with intently looking and abiding in God's word on a continuous basis, there are glorious, truly soul-satisfying promises that are to us and for us. Any man, woman, or child regenerated, saved by the work of Christ, they're going to be like Psalm 1, just such a beautiful picture. You can see a, a grand tree planted by a beautiful stream, constantly feeding it, sustaining it, giving life, bearing fruit, fruit for others to enjoy. And in a manner of life, in this life, there's, there's a prosperity, a soulish fellowship with God. And in our church relationships and ultimately our prosperity of being eternally with the Lord. So in the last two verses, James is going to give us details of three aspects of true spirituality. True religion, as he calls it. One is negative, it's a litmus test for us, and two of these are positive. And the first is the area of our speech. And just as we saw back in verse 19, for those who would consider themselves religious must have a rein on their tongue. James addresses the use of our tongue and our speech throughout this whole letter. 
And so by way of a reminder, I offer to you to read James often. But so whether a man has an unbridled tongue, hurling insults and criticisms of others, or raising up an objection to the truth of God's word, it will reveal his religion and that it is worthless. It is a mere sham. He's himself deceiving his own heart, giving a perverted impression of who he really is. Simply playing a role or wearing a mask, but convincing himself that he really is religious, yet all the whole time not even practicing what he says he believes. Our conduct is always going to be the litmus test of what we believe. And this is a similar description of of vain religion that Paul warns Timothy of. Those who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. They deny its truth to transform. There are also those who are always learning, but they never come to the knowledge and arrive at the knowledge of truth. And this knowledge that's only gained through a relationship with God and his word. Second, one's religion is certainly more than external. It must spring from an inner spiritual working of the word and the life of Christ that expresses love to others and and holiness before God. And James uses a very specific example of caring for orphans and widows. And in this, what he says by caring for them in in to visit or visiting is actually described much better in Matthew 25 because it goes beyond just social calls. Those are good. Phone calls, those are great. But he's talking about a very concerted effort to their needs, to look upon them with care. The examples here of orphans and widows were not random, but in this time especially, but even today, it's a very needy part of the church because of the persecution they were under. But if we look look deeper at that, these two examples were without fathers or husbands both without any ability to repay for the kindness and love and goodness shown to them. This is an example of faith working through love to those who are completely helpless. They're the objects of God's love, and it is one reason that we can even see in Isaiah that God judged Israel because of their neglect of orphans and widows in their midst. And if you look at ourselves, we were orphans. Orphans outside in sin, in darkness, and yet God in his mercy and his love purchased us with the very life and blood of Christ, bringing us to himself and adopting us as his very own. And then third and final, James tells us that true religion is a true expression of faith and love, and it will make every effort to keep ourselves from being stained and tainted by the world. If we seriously consider what the Puritan John Owen tells us from his day and age, even in his time, to starve those worldly influences, to keep ourselves pure and undefiled, this may mean we deal severely and quickly with anything offered by the world that would hinder our fellowship with the Father and with one another. The world here is is not talking about the the earth itself and the sun and the stars, but it's the system that was in, in force back then in James's time, which is, and even in ours, which is the essence of that total system of evil 
that pervades every area of our human existence with its thinkings, its allurements, every attempt it can make to detract us and keep us away from and in opposition to God and his righteousness. James is putting a very clear and examining mirror in front of us in these verses, and it's the Spirit of God who's actually doing the examination in our attitude, our heart, our responses, our quickness to hear. And it's not enough for us to just listen to a, a statement or a snippet of spiritual truth or even just to theorize it or philosophize about it in our armchairs or even engage in formal external rituals or religious activity. And James isn't calling us to all be grand theologians, but to continue in the simplicity of the gospel that's been given to us through the word of God, the eternal word of God. Because it is that word that's going to carefully examine our hearts. And we must both put these truths into practice in our lives so that our lives will be marked by love for others through us unto holiness before God and so that we can demonstrate our faith by works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your eternal living word to us, and I pray, Lord, that this section of James, this letter from James to the church, will remind us, will stir us up, of the great importance of your holy word, of its eternality, of its power to save, to regenerate, to transform. Father, I pray that it will stir within us a zeal, a hunger, a thirsting, an even greater measure to pursue your righteousness and your kingdom through your word. Lord, use these truths. Use your word, Father, to enable us to live lives pleasing and holy before you and to reach a lost and dying world with the gospel, the salvation, the great gift and grace of Christ Jesus. It's his, his, his name we pray. Amen.